eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Brittany. And this is For Colored Nerds. The weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture that we rarely discuss in mixed company. All right, y'all. So this week's episode is a real treat. In 2019, the New York Times Magazine released the 1619 Project, a special issue focused on the continued impact of race-based slavery in the United States. It was produced and edited by the brilliant reporter and professor Nicole Hannah-Jones. And in just a few short years, the 1619 Project has realigned the way we talk about American history. But with these laurels has come immense pushback from conservative America. As of this recording, five states have tried to ban efforts to teach the project's approach to history, and creator Nicole Hannah-Jones has been personally targeted. Her appointment to become a tenure professor at the UNC Hussman School of Media and Journalism was pulled after complaints from a conservative donor to the university. Even though she was ultimately offered the position, she declined the opportunity to accept a night chair appointment at our alma mater, Howard University, H.U. And that's not all. She is back with a new book, 1619 Project, A New Origin Story, an expansion of the Times special issue that features essays, poetry, and more from the likes of Ibram X. Kendi, Dorothy Roberts, Michelle Alexander, and so many more. And we invite her to the show to talk about all of that. Let's do it. Nicole, Hannah, Jones, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you on the show. Yes, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. So 1619, the book, it features, you know, not just essays, but photography, poetry, and prose from the likes of Sonia Sanchez, Jason Reynolds, Ming Smith, Barry Jenkins, and kind of so many more of these awesome artistic luminaries of today. I'm curious, like, why was it important to feature so much artistry alongside the history? You know, I see this book as serving kind of dual purposes. One, it, it's really trying to reframe the narrative of America and uh, through the lens of slavery and show through a series of essays that so much about modern society has been shaped by uh, slavery, which is a foundational American institution, even as it's been treated as marginal. So the essays are all really making that argument, not just about what happened a long time ago, but how what happened a long time ago shapes the society we live in today across a bunch of different areas. But the second aspect of the book is really that the book is a, a testament. It is a testament to both the ancestors and all that they endured and all that they fought for so that we could be here today. And then it's a testament to the descendants that there are you know, more than 31 million of us who descend from American slavery. And we are amongst the greatest writers, artists, the greatest thinkers in this country, not greatest Black writers or greatest Black artists or greatest Black thinkers, but the greatest writers, artists, thinkers. And so I wanted to really showcase the breadth of that, that this was really a who's who of American writers, uh, everyone from, you know, Terry McMillan, who one would not think of in this genre, typically to Sonia Sanchez, who is the very last poet uh, in the book, whom I just call her Mama Sanchez. I love her so much. So it was just, you know, it was it was really trying to treat this as a testament that we are here. We have always punched above our weight. We have had you know, more influence on this culture, I would argue, than any other group of people. And we wanted to showcase all of that. You know, this is a 400-year story. 
Yeah. And for us, what you feel that, like, as you read the book, I think one of the things that's kind of amazing for something that's so expansive, covering, you know, 400 years of history, taking us into today, there are so many moments that are kind of like big and broad, but also deeply like specific and personal too. And so that's kind of what stuck out to us, like seeing that history mixed with kind of the artistry, how people are thinking about it. I haven't quite seen an assemblance of kind of something like that all mixed together, which was really nice. Good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're like, mission accomplished. So, you know, the original 1619 Project special issue was released in 2019. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the bulk of the book's creation kind of went into 2020 and even maybe into 2021. And, you know, so much of the book is about tracing, as you mentioned, the kind of the roots of America's systemic inequalities. And, you know, so many of the issues of the book all felt like they were kind of coming to a head over the past like year and a half, which actually would be made for a really interesting experience reading it. I was, it felt very ahead of the curve, like almost like a premonition. I'm curious, like, what was it like for you, you know, to see so much of that kind of deep inequality laid bare by the pandemic as you were kind of writing and editing this? Yeah, it was surreal. So we spent all of last year working on the book and the beginning months of this year working on the book. And so, you know, we are working on this as people are taking to the streets because we all witnessed an actual lynching. And I don't use the word lynching in a hyperbolic way. I don't use lynching as metaphor. I only use lynching if it's an actual lynching. And we all witnessed that. So I think for many people, the arguments that we were making in the 1619 Project, which is that our society is being shaped by this history, it has been corroded by this history, all of that kind of came to a head between the pandemic, which of course was killing Black people at the highest rates, where we were losing our homes at the highest rates, where uh, we were losing our jobs at the highest rates, where we were getting sick and exposed at the highest rates. And then we were still being killed by the police uh, and, and this way in a very public way. So I think it became clear that the arguments of the project were being borne out in real time. And then add into that the statues coming down. I think the language of the protest this time was about a 400 year legacy. Over and over again, you saw the year 1619 being evoked and the fact that this wasn't just about a few individual bad apple cops that this was about structures that have been ongoing for centuries and that we haven't dealt with. And it was both deeply painful, like every Black person in this country experienced this in a very personal and personally painful way, but it also, to me, was vindication of, of the argument. So those who tried to say, well, why, you know, every Black person in America has heard Slavery was a long time ago. Why don't y'all get over it? As if we don't want to get over this shit more than everybody else in America, right? <laughs> but when we saw what happened last year, you couldn't really make that argument because it was so clear that America hasn't gotten over it. And I think the 1619 Project, people were seeking it out because it was helping them understand their country. And then, you know, we had an insurrection on January 6th. And the origin story of 1776 does not explain the insurrection on January 6th, but the origin story 1619 does. Hmm, that's such a great point. I mean, to that end, though, did you ever consider holding publication to cover a little bit more of you know these events as they play out? It's one of those things like I could see where we never know quite where things are going to end or transition. So yeah, I'm just curious, like, did, was there ever a consideration for maybe we should hold a bit of this to be able to cover what is happening in front of us? No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, publishing just doesn't really work like that. There's so much that has to be in place. Like you have to close a book out so many months before publication that holding it wasn't really an option. And frankly, I'm exhausted and I, I cannot, <laughs> I just, I, it's not sustainable, honestly, to work on something of this intensity for that long. But the second thing is, is it will never be over. If you read the project, it's very clear that uh, we go through these cycles because we cannot deal with the fact that we are a nation founded on slavery. We cannot deal with the anti-Blackness that is embedded in our DNA. And so we just keep having these cycles that we're in. And uh, if we waited a year, if we waited five years, it's not going to be over. And you can't publish around, you know, thinking that eventually America is going to stop having white backlash, resolve these issues, because it's sadly not likely to happen. So one of the things that we noticed as our team was reading the book, we kept remarking how frustrating and even painful it was to keep confronting just 
how so much of our society's brokenness is rooted in like this institution of race-based slavery in the United States. What was it like for you as basically the person spearheading this project to keep coming across these same themes over and over and over again? This was absolutely the most emotionally taxing and draining thing I've ever done in my life. Because not only you know did I write three of the essays in the book, but I curated all of the essays in the book. I read every single word of every single essay more than once, every photo, every poem. It is a devastating history. And it's not like at five o'clock, I can clock out and not think about this. This is my family. This is our community. And there is no kind of getting away from it or having some kind of like mental divide. So it was extremely difficult, even though, you know, I've been, I've never written about things that really bring joy. I've spent my whole career writing about racial inequality. I've been studying this stuff for 25 years, but there's still, it's like every time you think you've read about every horror, there's just more. It's, it's, it's unending. But I will say the other side of that is I have such a profound gratitude for not just what our ancestors bore, but all the ways that they fought back and all the ways that they resisted. And we get a taste of the horror. I think when we watch movies or when we get a little bit about this history in in watching movies of the civil rights movement or uh, learning about slavery in school, what we don't get so much is this just active resistance that Black folks were always fighting back against all odds, that we were actually, you know, the primary democratizing force in this country, that, you know, my family is from the Delta in Mississippi and Black people are creating art. They're creating the blues. Uh, You know, the circumstances are so horrible that we're creating the blues, but we're also creating, which is amazing that you can be in these dire circumstances and still be living and creating. So it's very hard to do this work, but I, I just feel so grateful that I can do this work because the truth is we have to know what happened in order to understand why things are like they are. And you know, it's been a, I would argue, a 400-year cover-up uh, to really downplay slavery, to really downplay anti-Blackness. I mean, the hysteria we're seeing across the country right now is because folks have not wanted to be confronted with what this country is actually built upon. But these myths are useless. They don't actually help us become a great country. Yeah. I mean, to that end, you, you speak of like myths. And I think about there's like the common like cliche that, you know, race is a social construct, you know. But it's clear that our racial caste system has been, you know, used to stoke division between marginalized groups, kill support for social and political change, and to, you know, just shut Black people out of the full benefits of citizenship for a long time. In our conversations, we felt like, you know, race, sure, it's a, in theory a construct, but it's also clearly a tool. And we were feeling like it's actually a tool that, you know, that Black people can't really wield in the same way it's wielded yes. against us. It was kind of a weird place to kind of sit in for us. I'm curious, like, how does that, like, our kind of takeaway mesh with kind of what you intended for people to see in the book? Race is both real and not real. So we know that there's no biological basis for race, but that we have a society that created something called race and policed the boundaries of that race. White society created laws around that idea of race and also that the invention of race was really about economic exploitation and uh, to justify that economic exploitation. One thing that I say to people when they're like, race is a construct, it's not real, so we should stop talking about it and it will just go away. As I say, money is a construct too. Like this green piece of paper is only worth something because our society says that it's worth something. And I can tell myself, well, I don't believe in money. Money's not real. But I can't go to the store and just take something out of it because I don't believe money is real, right? So yes, we can know that race isn't real, but we can also know that race functions in a real way in our society and that race was created in this society to justify the exploitation of Black labor, 
but also uh, to ensure that those who should have a material interest, class interest, right, poor white people and enslaved and poor black people who outnumbered the white elite, that they would never have a natural alliance and therefore would never actually challenge the white elite because by separating white people and black people as racially distinct and one is having rights and one having none, you would ensure that even the poorest white person knew that no matter how little money they had, they would never be black. They would always have rights and privileges that black people wouldn't have. And that is extremely effective. We see that still today. Um, So I don't even know what your question was, but... uh, (laughs) I guess it was just like, to your point, like, are we able to kind of leverage the tool of race almost like it's one of those things like it feels like something that was created so completely to be used against us i just wonder how we participate in that system to like rebel against it if that makes any sense yeah i mean it's hard because we didn't create race we don't police the boundaries of race we don't decide what value race has or doesn't have and i think what makes our circumstance as Black people in America different than other people who were brought from Africa to the Americas to be enslaved is we are in, we are a tiny minority in a majority white country, which is not the case in many of the other places. It's not the case in the Caribbean. It's not the case in many other places. And so our power is just very different. We don't get to set the parameters. We have to adapt to them, which is why this moment we're in is so fascinating to me because for 350 years, White people designated us as a racial group and us being designated as a distinct racial group meant you could legislate against us. uh, You could openly discriminate against us in every aspect of American life until 10 years before I was born. And you also could police the boundaries where someone as light as me, uh, who genetically is more white than black, is black. And everyone knows that when you see it. And now, after the civil rights movement, when it becomes illegal to discriminate against people by race, those same people who created those laws now want to say, well, now we can't pay attention to race at all. We can't pay attention to race to help those people that for 350 years we punish for being black. Now, if we want to help those people, we just have to ignore race and pretend it doesn't exist because it's no longer in their interest to explicitly say race exists, even as they continue to operate a racialized society. So it's it's hard, I guess, not to feel powerless in the circumstance because we're 13% of the population and we can't change anything on our own. We have to spend all the time convincing, trying to convince and cajole the majority population to side with our interests. And this is why you see like black folks uh, in South Carolina picking Joe Biden because black folks in South Carolina understand white people. And we can't vote aspirationally. We can't vote for the candidate who speaks to our aspirations. We have to vote for the candidate that we think we can get enough white people to support so we don't lose our rights. This is unfortunately... Uh, the circumstance that that we have always been in in this country. As we're talking about race, you know, maybe think of that chapter of the book specifically and how much race, as you mentioned, is about, you know, maintaining this myth of purity and policing the boundaries of it and very frequently like reducing Black women's bodily autonomy through sterilization or through sexual violence. Those were some of the tactics that have been used over the centuries in our country. And for profit. And for for profit. And for profit the forced reproduction of black women was profitable. And so you exactly. you have to create this stereotype that black women can't be raped. And during slavery, there was no such thing there was as rape legally against a enslaved woman. And that black women like being sexually mistreated, right? This is where you get these stereotypes of, of black women as promiscuous, as the Jezebel. It's all going to justify not just sexual assault on black women, but that it is profitable to sexually assault black women, that the child that comes from that assault can be sold, can be used you know, as collateral for a loan, can be mortgaged off, can be used to pay your debt. And we still see that stereotype today in the idea yeah. that black women are having babies to get a government check. That's still that same concept that black women's wombs are being used for profit. I want to like, pull on that for a second. Like That chapter goes through so many of the things that you just mentioned, but yes. it ends on this note of the story of Loretta Ross, who's one of the co-founders of Sister Song, which is a major organization based in the South that is, you know, fighting against violence against Black women and girls. And 
that chapter and so many others in the book, one of the things, even when things were extremely dark and horrific to read about, for me, even as somebody who likes to read a lot, right, likes to call themselves knowing something sometimes, right, it reframed for me just how Black people have been on the forefront of just about every major push for change in this country. Reproductive justice, federally funded health care, economic and housing justice, like in my experience, the education that I received diluted a lot of that information. I felt like this book really puts Black organizing and resistance, going back to what you were just saying a few minutes ago, front and center in a way that for me, especially with that chapter about Loretta Ross, a woman who has been sterilized, you know, had a college scholarship rescinded because she had a child that was the product of sexual violence. And she's somebody who, you know, went on to become one of the Black women who coined the term reproductive justice. Yeah, It made me feel, you mentioned earlier, gratitude. I felt that gratitude, but I also felt hopeful in a way I was not anticipating. Mm. Can you talk to us more about that? There's a lot of conversation, I think, a lot of time about this idea of hope when books like these come out. A lot of times it ends up with a white person asking someone like you. (laughs) Uh, about hope. But but for me, as a Black woman reading the book, was that something that you were hoping for people to get out of it or that you were anticipating people might get out of it? You know, I, I, I've i said this many times. I don't find hope personally useful for my life and the work that I'm doing. Uh, the emotion I'd like to tap into is mm. rage, but, I feel you. but that I also understand a need for hope, right? Like our ancestors had to believe that they could help bring about a world that they probably would not live to see. And if you don't have that belief, then you don't fight for a different future. And what was so important to me with this book was that, yes, we had to catalog the brutality, the barbarism, the hypocrisy, the lack of rights, the theft of wealth. We had to catalog all of those things, but it couldn't be a story where we just sat and took it because that's not the truth. The truth is We were always fighting and we were always innovating and that we saw, as I argue in my opening essay, for the Declaration of Independence, this is why I I always tell uh, students and journalists, read primary documents yourself. Don't just read the excerpt that someone chose to put in a book. Because when we think about the Declaration of Independence, we think about that opening stanza. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by the creator with inalienable rights. But the Declaration of Independence is a succession document. Most of that document is a list of all of the crimes that the colonists are saying that King of England has committed against them that justifies them leaving the British Empire. But a Black man named Lemuel Samuels looked at that opening graph and said, actually, this is calling for the end of slavery. This is a liberation document. This is a document about universal rights. And he is the first one who actually links that to abolition. That's not what Jefferson was doing, but that it was a Black man who read that. So there's something about understanding that when you are on the very bottom, when you are so much the bottom that You are not even considered part of the body politic. You are not a citizen in your own country. You're not even considered a human being. That that leads you to have to fight for everyone else's rights because there's an understanding that as soon as someone else doesn't have a right, you obviously won't have one because everyone else has a higher status than you. And so Black people have always understood that. That's why I say we we are the primary democratizing force. We are the people who vote most for community and the least for our individual advancement. But we're not taught those stories. So every time I give a talk, I always get a question about hope. And I say, I I don't necessarily believe in America, but I believe Mm -hmm. in us. I believe in Black people. I believe in Black people's vision for America. And so many white people would not need to be mad at the 1619 Project if they could ever see themselves in our story the way we're always forced to see ourselves in theirs. Because the story of Black America, to me, is a story that every American should feel proud of, that the people who had nothing, no rights, you know, we couldn't go to court and sue. You really couldn't commit a crime against us. We couldn't own property. We didn't even have ownership over our own children. And yet we had the most expansive vision for liberty of anyone in this country and have died and fought generationally to make that true. That's an inspiring story if people could ever see themselves in the Black freedom struggle. That's such a great point. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish. Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Not everything in life is flexible, but at Capella University, your education can be. With our game-changing FlexPath learning format, you're empowered to fit education into your life without putting other priorities on hold. FlexPath lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them when needed. You can take courses at your own speed and move on to the next one when you're ready. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. I want to pivot a little bit to just kind of the reception of the book. Okay. The 1619 Project has been everywhere for the past two years. I've seen 1619 t-shirts, tote bags, baseball caps. And I'm curious, like, you know, between the support for the project, you know, as well as the pushback, like the name 1619 has become a kind of cultural, like, shorthand. And, you know, the impact of the book obviously still remains to be seen. We hope it is immense. But, you know, I'm curious, like, do you ever worry about your work, like, becoming memefied and maybe losing some of that resonance? One, I don't own 1619, mm-hmm. right? 1619 is a historic date that is owned by all of us. My big overarching goal when I pitched the 1619 Project was I wanted Americans to know that date. It's hard to remember that two and a half years ago, before the project came out, most Americans had never heard of the date 1619. It was not part of our national lexicon. And I wanted us to know that date. So even when Donald Trump was tweeting about the 1619 Project to followers who were never going to read a word of the project, they also know 1619 as the beginning of American slavery. And I think that that is, in and of itself, a powerful resetting to know that slavery is amongst the oldest institutions in America. There are a thousand 1619 Project knockoff, everything you said, t-shirts, tote bags, hats. If you go on Amazon, there's a bunch of anti-1619 books where all kinds of folks are making profits off of the 1619 Project. But I feel like the more people who we can get to think about this and to mark this just brings this story out of you know the margins and the erasure that we've often felt. I'm very conscious of controlling what I do with the project, making sure that nothing I personally do or that comes uh, officially out of the project is watered down or diluted, quality control, and making sure it's just as an unflinching as the original project that everything that might come out of it is. Or like when we sell official 1619 project merchandise, we are partnering. So proceeds go to Black organizations. So it never feels exploitative to me. But I don't worry about all the other derivatives because again, I, I don't I don't own 1619. And as many people who want to talk about it, to me, it's all for the good. Even the negative. To that point, there has been, since the original journalism project came out in August 2019, there's been a fervent, sustained national pushback to the 1619 project from many, um, quote unquote, historians. 
and thought leaders on the right, people talking about 1776 project, you know, a lot of backlash. And I think some people may be willful misunderstanding of your work, you know, has affected your teaching job at University of North Carolina. And all of this has kind of also dovetailed with this national backlash to the idea of teaching critical race theory in schools. And I don't think those things are are unrelated, but I wonder, like, how do you feel about the way that the pushback has been personalized against you in particular at times? So first, I want to just correct the record a little bit on that, which is the project has not been controversial amongst a large number of historians. It's actually been controversial amongst a very small number of historians. But as we all know, because people have wanted to discredit the project, that group of historians, which was really five, six at the max, who publicly came out to try to discredit the project, they've gotten outsized amount of attention. We have more historians than that who wrote for the project. We have more historians than that who fact-checked the project. So if you look at the book expansion, all but one of the new essays is written by an academic historian. So don't believe that hype. But what I will say is I clearly have gotten caught up in, you know, a propaganda campaign. If you understand the 1619 Project, then you understand that if you want to win close elections, if you want to divide people from each other, that race is the tool that since 1776 has been a successful way to find political success. And the 1619 Project has gotten caught up in that. It, it is it is being seen as a useful tool for white anxiety. I mean, this is a country where white people feel like they're losing their demographic primacy. They feel like there are narratives like the 1619 Project that are unseating them as the only heroes in the story. There are questions about how we think about people like George Washington or Thomas Jefferson and the tearing down of Confederate monuments. And so this campaign, both the critical race theory campaign, which the fact that all of us are talking about critical race theory when 10 months ago nobody was talking about it should tell you that this is a propaganda campaign. The fact that that's been successful just speaks to the racial anxiety uh, of so many white Americans in this country. And it is a very old tactic. What has been most difficult for me, though, has been the efforts to discredit me personally as a journalist. It's one thing to critique my work. You know, I've been part of a targeted disinformation campaign. I can't tweet anything without Fox News doing a whole story on my tweets. And there's been an effort to really discredit my work as a journalist. And I think what that speaks to is that narrative, our collective memory, our shared sense of history. That's how powerful people control Mm, the nation, right? I've been writing about racial inequality for 20 years. It's not until I did something that said, we need to think differently about our history and our identity as a country that I've come under attacks all the way from the White House. And that's because it is the narrative that allows you to pass policy. And When we saw the protests last summer, I've looked a lot at the polling during those protests when people were talking about this 400-year legacy, structural racism. You had almost 50% of Republicans who were saying that systemic racism was a primary obstacle for Black Americans. That's an astounding figure because, of course, Republicans want to believe that we are all equal and anything that Black people are suffering from is because they blame it on individuals. They don't, they haven't wanted to believe in systemic. And yet 50% nearly of Republicans were seeing this as a systemic issue. And voters went to the polls and elected Biden by the largest margin in presidential history, flipped the Senate, including sending the first black man from Georgia to the Senate since Reconstruction. And then you see this intense backlash. These things are connected. The same states that are passing anti-critical race theory, anti-1619 project laws are also passing anti-voter laws. That's not incidental. If you stoke white anxiety about Black people are not legitimate voters, you know, people of color trying to take something from you, then you can pass that law that says maybe these people shouldn't be voting. Maybe we have to control that population. And my work has gotten caught up in that larger campaign. I have to say, I do feel some slight 
twinge of pride that you could create a work of journalism that has folks so scared that they need to literally ban it by name in legislation. Uh, who know? Your, your impact. <laughs> who <laughs> you know? know? Hey. Who know? <laughs> You brought up white anxiety and like specifically white anxiety as it relates to critical race theory and just kind of how we think about this, like understanding the history of racist kind of America, you know, it it could be as simple as like just connecting dots. Like for me, it was just connecting these dots in proximity to each other was massive. But obviously many white people and just those on the right have been hell bent on kind of blocking access to this information and specifically at the primary and secondary education level. And it's interesting, like, The 1619 Project has been banned by some schools and states, and this book has just kind of come out. Like, the information is clearly under attack, and I know some people try to say this information is not actually even being taught in this manner. But personally, I feel like it should be. How do we prepare ourselves for the battle of how to introduce a more truthful history into our schools at the primary and secondary level? Yeah, I mean— Really what these laws are about is maintaining the abysmal way that we've already been taught this history. So we know that the studies show that most teachers say they avoid dealing with race in their classrooms because they don't know how, that teachers feel like they're not educated enough through their schools of education to teach about slavery well. We know that if you look at textbooks, they're not really dealing with these issues. So What these laws are trying to do is just preserve the poor way of teaching the true and accurate history of our country that already exists. But the opposition to a more truthful rendering of our history is very organized. If we didn't realize that after what happened in Virginia, what's happening in Texas, in Georgia, in Florida, that they are organized. And those who want not just the 1619 Project, but just more accurate history in general, not organized at all. Uh, You know, you don't see that type of pushback. You don't see them descending on school board meetings, not in the threatening way that the anti-critical race theory people are, but just showing up, just taking up time at the microphone, organizing voters to keep in school board members. You know, these laws at their root are memory laws. They're laws to try to keep school children from learning a more accurate rendering of history in order to shape uh, how they will support as adults certain policies and whether we will create a more equal society or not. But we're just sitting on our hands. This is a dangerous period. I've been been reading a lot of books on fascism, on uh, how democracies die. Actually, there's a book I just finished called How Democracies Die because what we're seeing right now checks off all the lists for what happens when you begin to lose your democracy. And whether, you know, a single work of journalism gets taught or not is not the crisis. The crisis is that they are able to pass these anti-free speech laws with very little pushback, that they're then passing anti-democratic laws uh, with very little pushback, and that we're all just sitting here like everything's going to be okay. And I'm, I'm not convinced it will be. If you study the book, then you know uh, reconstruction ends, but Jim Crow doesn't get introduced overnight, right? It's not like one day you don't have Jim Crow and the next day you do. They start passing a law here and a law there, right? They just start turning up the heat little by little. And then the next thing you know, Black people don't have the ability to vote. Black people are living in apartheid. I'm not saying we're ever going to go back to that. You never go all the way back to how bad it was, but you can go back quite a bit. And we need to rise to the moment because the other side is certainly organized. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's such a great point. It's clear that we're still receiving kind of the first wave. I want to pivot a a little more to kind of some of the newer things you have going on, specifically your transition to becoming on staff at Howard as part of the faculty. When you announced your decision to turn down the offer at at UNC after they denied your tenure, and you and Ta-Nehisi Coates kind of announced the creation of this multidisciplinary journalism and democracy center to prepare journalists of tomorrow, it kind of seemed like the scope of what you plan to do at Howard actually is even a little bigger than kind of what you were planning at UNC. Tell me a bit about the moment when the idea for the Center for Journalism and Democracy started to come together and how that kind of came to be. Yeah, the scope of what I'm going to be doing at Howard is definitely bigger than what I was going to do at the University of North Carolina. After the story broke about what happened with UNC and then the follow-up stories that really show the extent to which 
The wealthy donor, Walter Hussman, had interfered in my tenure process. The really insulting things that he had written about me as a journalist. Anybody who wanted to interview him, it seemed like he was willing to be interviewed, even called the question whether I was a Black separatist in print. And yet this was a man who was interfering in a process that he should have had no involvement in because he didn't like my journalism, and yet uh, trying to dictate the tenets of our profession and saying these are mm. the proper tenets of a journalism school in our profession. And he didn't think that I adhered to that. So it was in the midst of all of that, that it became pretty clear to me that no matter what North Carolina did, I couldn't keep my dignity and go work for a school named after that man. But it also kind of triggered what has always been a motivator for me, which is vengeance. And so... <laughs> <laughs> So I decided, you know, not only was I going to go somewhere else, I was going to go to a historically black college. I was going to take my talents to the people who I think were most deserving of it. And I was going to raise the same amount of money that Walter Hussman raised. Um, Well, he only gave them two million dollars. The rest, the rest is pledged. But that I was going to match his pledge because that was the biggest donation that the journalism school had ever received. And because that man gave that much money, he felt he had the right to interfere in things that had nothing to do with him. So I decided I was going to raise that same amount of money and I was going to bring it to Howard. And not only was I going to bring it to Howard, but I was going to push back against his idea of what journalism was. And I also was going to, you know, push back against what I think are failings of our profession in general. I I don't think that the journalistic profession is rising to the urgency and the danger of the moment that we're in. I think there are too many people for whom the idea that they'll be okay is given, that they're not going to lose their rights, that our democracy will hold, and Black journalists know better. So I wanted to train the next generation in historically informed journalism, where they understand the lessons of the past and investigative journalism uh, to go out and do the work that I think this democracy requires. So uh, it was all of those things. And and certainly I was just going to be a professor at Carolina. And now, you know, I'm starting a whole center that's going to train generations of journalists, not just at Howard but across the diaspora of historically Black colleges. University of North Carolina is the oldest public school in America. It was founded in the 1700s, the first public university in America. The journalism school there is considered the top all-around journalism program in the country. And his gift of $25 million was the largest donation that that journalism school had ever received. So imagine what that means for a school like Howard mm-hmm. to have that amount of money that can be used to educate journalists. That is how one, I think, has to exercise power when you come into it. And also, full disclosure, we both graduated from we were Howard. Both I'm not Howard sure grad. if... Oh, yeah. And we both went, we were both Howard grads from the School of Communication. Yeah, I was oh, actually... It was John S. Johnson at the time. Then, but uh, yeah, I was a journalism major. So, for, you know, for what it's worth, this is something we've been tracking pretty closely. You know, and, and also, you know, Eric and I care a lot about HBCUs. And... You know, it has to be said, your hiring coincides with a really unique time at the university. Like faculty have spoken out about the lack of tenure track positions and inadequate funding. And, you know, as of this conversation, Howard students have been protesting for weeks against what they feel are substandard living conditions. And full disclosure, like back when Eric and I were at Howard, some of the concerns that they're sharing are concerns that we had back in 2005, 2006. And they're talking about substandard living conditions, excuse me, if they even have, you know, university housing at all. Mm -hmm. And that's not just Howard. Like there's so many other HBCUs facing uncertain futures. And, you know, it has to be said, like, I'm so excited and a little jealous that the current students do get to have you and (laughs) as professors. But like, where do you see yourself contributing, even outside of this project, to like a better future for Howard? And I have another follow-up question about HBCUs, but I would love to know, like, Where do you see yourself fitting into like the future of Howard in that way? Yeah, you know, so Howard suffers from the same structural deficit that Black America suffers from. As you know, Howard is considered the crown jewel of the HBCU system. It's the best funded of the HBCU system. And yet its funding doesn't even come close to even any of the universities in Washington, D.C., and certainly not to the elite PWIs that we compare it to. Howard also, with a lot less funding, serves a low-income student population that is 
often triple that of other high-performing universities. So what I see my role is one that hopefully we can see a reverse migration. You know, there have been people who have chosen to work at Howard and historically black universities because their heart is with serving our community. But too many of us, as I talked about, have believed that success is being defined by finding success in white institutions. And I hope by ta and I coming here, and I think we won't be the last big names, I think that, that are going to show up at HBCUs, that we can kind of see a reverse migration of people who have access to certain resources. You know, I, I was able to raise $25 million in less than a month. There's not a lot of people who can do that. And most of the people who can yeah. do that aren't raising that money to go to our institutions. But if you do it, I think it becomes much more difficult for others who are in those positions not to do it. And I hope that that's what we see. Part of what I raised money for was student financial support. So we're not just building a center that that's going to offer classes, but that's going to provide stipends for students, that's going to provide emergency aid for students, that's going to provide stipends for faculty, because frankly, even for full-time faculty at HBCUs isn't being paid as well. And they're having to subsidize a lot of their students who have a great need. So I think that the role of someone like me is to not just come myself, but to act in community and see how many resources can I bring with me to support those who always knew that Howard was the place they should be, right? Who didn't have to go up through the ranks of PWIs before they decided they're certainly worthy of that type of support. The last thing I'll say is I met with some of the students protesting. I'm always proud of students who are willing to sacrifice and advocate on behalf of themselves. The one thing that has been difficult for me has been to see other people at PWIs who almost gleefully were talking about Howard. And it's one thing to be critiquing the institution from inside, from people who I know are invested in that institution and who want to see it better. It's another thing for you to be sitting, you know, somewhere at Princeton and Harvard, which have endowments that are, you know, 50 times higher than Howard's and kind of thumbing your nose at what's happening there. And I'm always going to bristle at that sort of thing. Something, an idea that that popped up when I was thinking about like what you are, you know, doing and planning to do in the future continuously at Howard and the type of investment that you're making there. And also just like, you know, to your point, there's all these different factors that kind of put HBCUs in the specific position there. And even if you think about like federal funding is lacking, yes. the barriers to black wealth building and the yes. wealth gap and how that can even affect your alumni support. There's going to be a difference in between like the available alumni support from a school like Harvard and a school like Howard. And so, you know, and we go into and, serving that's the other thing. Like we're more likely to go into majors that are community oriented. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we're not, exactly. we're not going into be the hedge fund person Mm-mm. necessarily. We're much more likely to be going to social work, education. And even if we're doctors, we're serving in low income communities. Yeah. And so, yeah. yes, that plays a substantial role uh, in the ability to give back to institutions. Your book kind of ends on the idea of justice, like what economic justice might even look like um, for Black people. It's hard not to read your book and feel like HBCUs are owed some type of institutional reparations or economic justice in that sense. What would economic justice look like for HBCUs? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, Adam Harris, a journalist at The Atlantic, has a book out that talks about the structural racism that has really crippled so many HBCUs, even as they are putting out more Black professionals than PWIs combined often. I think that reparations is also owed to HBCUs. One, there's lawsuits ongoing right now where we know that states have actually worked still to disadvantage the HBCUs compared to the PWIs that they're funding. I think an argument can be made that even something like the Ivies, which were often financed through slave labor, should be paying reparations to less wealthy HBCUs. So I don't think we can talk about reparations as being one thing. I think it has to help build up institutions that have been intentionally disadvantaged and then are serving communities that have been intentionally disadvantaged. I think we have to have 
a very broad conversation about reparations and what that should look like and what does repair and restitution look like. And I absolutely think historically black colleges are old as well. One, I just have to say that there is such a through line in your work. Like I came to it, you know, from your work on school desegregation, but you also, obviously there's the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting, 1619 Project, the work that you're doing at Howard. I'm curious, like, you know, at this point, how do you think about kind of the mission of your career? Like, you know, what are you laddering up to? I feel like I've already climbed higher on the ladder than I ever imagined for my life. So I didn't expect any of this. So I don't even know what I'm laddering up to. I think when I think about what I hope to do going forward is I just want to continue to build institutions uh, to support the larger community that I've had a great deal of individual success, but I will have failed if I'm not also building institutions that help my community to have greater success. That's why I co-founded the IDB Wealth Society. That's why when I decided to come to Howard, I decided to create a new center there. I have a free after-school literacy program that is launching in my hometown in January that's going to serve are the kids at the most segregated and high poverty schools in my hometown. I think what's climbing the ladder for me is, is not getting more accolades in my own career, but trying to work on behalf of, of my larger Black communities. Wow. Well, I mean, I think you're making some good headway. Yeah. I mean, that's just one woman's opinion. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. We want to say thank you so much uh, for your time. Seriously, like reading the book, you know, we, we're both people who love history. And, you know, it was a hard read, I won't lie. Uh, okay. It left me kind of in a, a so. little more of a, a depressed place than I expected. But it was also, it, it was clearly so important and, you know, and complicated, to Brittany's point earlier. You know, you, you get a little bit of everything. So just want to say thank you for, for thank the time you. and your work. Thank you. And thank you so much for uh, the conversation. I really enjoyed it. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by our production team at Stitcher, including producers Alexis Williams, Willis Arnold, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Casey Holfer is our technical director, and Peter Clowney is head of content. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from our listeners. We love y'all so much. So please connect with us and tell us what you thought of this episode. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at For Colored Nerds. And never miss an episode by following us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. Not everything in life is flexible, but at Capella University, your education can be. With our game-changing FlexPath learning format, you're empowered to fit education into your life without putting other priorities on hold. FlexPath lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them when needed. You can take courses at your own speed and move on to the next one when you're ready. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.